0: Uh, the message today. Um, if you haven't noticed already, I'm not Pastor Ryan. Pastor Ryan is, Pastor Ryan and Kelly are gone this week, um, but I get to fill in, and uh, I just want to start by saying I don't see this today at all as just filling in because this message that I get to give, I actually handpicked out of this series. We're in the series, an eight-week series on freedom, and I chose this today because it's near and dear to my heart. Um, I get the opportunity to do something that. That scares me every time I do it, especially in front of a large group, and that's to be honest with you all, to be transparent, to be vulnerable. Um, But I believe with all of my heart that if we don't do that in the church, then where can we do it? If we aren't willing to experience healing and freedom and life inside this building, then I don't know where we can do it. I believe with all of my heart that this, that church should be Not a hotel for saints, but it should be a hospital for sinners where we can come in and we all realize, hey, we don't have it all together, but we get to come and together we get to allow God to do what he wants to do in our lives. And it can only happen by us recognizing that. We can't just go to church and pretend like everything's okay because everything isn't always okay. And that's why we need each other. And that's why we need God. Amen. 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 All right. Um, So last week we talked about the reality choice. Pastor Ryan talked about the reality choice. He talked about the the fact that we need to get to this place. The first step in this process is getting to the place where we realize that I'm not God. I admit that I'm powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and that my life is unmanageable. Now, he described it really well last week. He, he, he really explained when it says powerless, it doesn't mean that something takes over us and then if we ch- decide to shoot somebody that we don't take responsibility for it. We take responsibility for everything that we do. But there's this spiritual thing that happens that the Bible says we're not in a battle against flesh and blood. We're in a battle in the spiritual realm against principalities and darkness of this world. And this battle, I think, is very well described by Paul in Romans chapter 7, which, by the way, is one of the most honest, wonderful uh, passages in all his scripture. Because here's Paul, he's one of the greatest missionaries ever, missionaries ever, maybe second to Jesus. And he just opens up in this writing, and I'm sure he knows this is going to go just beyond the church that he's writing it to. But it goes on to say, where he says, Listen, I am miserable. Like, I am one of the worst sinners. I do the things that I don't want to do, and I can't do the things that I want to do. He says, my life, in a lot of ways, I feel powerless, he says. My life is is unmanageable. And then he goes on, he even says this, he says, it is no longer I who does it, but it is sin living inside of me. Now, if you've read Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8, you see a very different story in Romans chapter 8, because then he comes in and he says, but... There's the Spirit of God that's living inside of me, and through the Spirit of God leading me, I can live a life of victory, and I can do the things that God is wanting me to do. But he says, I can't do it without the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God inside of me. So it's like, it's the the flesh inside of me that makes me do these things, and it's the Spirit of God inside of me that allows me to live this way. My pastor in Kansas, he, he would always say, there's two dogs living inside of you, ...that are always fighting. He says, whichever one you feed the most is going to win. And I believe that. Listen, a lot of our problems and issues in life... ...is because we feed the flesh way too darn much. I mean, it's hard not to. Like, you wake up in the morning... ...and you can feed your flesh right away... ...because you grab this computer device... ...and it's just right there for you. And you can just get on there and feed your flesh... ...instantly from the moment that you wake up. And then all throughout the day... ...there's opportunities to feed our flesh... Feeding your flesh is easy, right? Feeding your spirit seems to be a little bit more difficult. But let me tell you something. Even though it's more difficult, it's so much more worth it. Because it's the spirit of God that we're feeding inside of us that brings us life, that brings us hope, that does so much in our lives. So over the course of these next weeks, this is an eight-week series, what God wants to do is he wants to open a door in our lives. He wants to open a door of a prison door in our lives to reveal and to allow some of the things that have happened in our lives, some of the hurts, the habits, the hangups in our lives that we might experience freedom from those things through the spirit of the living God that lives inside of us and by us surrendering to this. That's what this process is. It's a process about opening the door and walking out into the fresh air of freedom. Jesus said it is for for freedom that he sets us free because he desires freedom for each one of us. So that brings us to our second choice, our second blessing. And in your notes, you have this here. This is what the hope choice is. Earnestly believe that God exists, that I matter to him, and that he has the power to help me change. What we're gonna talk a lot about this morning is we're gonna talk about beliefs dictate our behavior. That what you believe will determine how you behave. Because our beliefs, what we believe internally, if if I'm on a journey and I believe with all of my heart that there are lions in the forest that is before me, or I guess lions live in the jungle, don't they? So let's say there's (laughs) bears, Let's, let's do bears. If I believe there's bears in there, that's my belief that there's bears. I'm not going to go in there, right? Um, But if I believe that there's someone with me that is awesome and has like a bear slashing device, (laughs) then I'm cool, right? I'm good. Let's go. Our beliefs dictate our behavior. So we're going to talk a lot about that this morning. But I want to focus on something really interesting in Scripture. And it's from Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. And it says this. It says, blessed are happy... Are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Now, what in the world does mourning and being comforted have to do with anything? Here's what it has to do with the truth is, we all have experienced loss in this life, and recovery is getting back what has been taken from us because we all know that the enemy comes to steal, to kill, to destroy, but Jesus came to give life and to give life more abundant. I don't know if you know this or not, but the enemy is out for you. And he wants to steal from you. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy your life. And he will stop at nothing for unless he will stop at nothing to accomplish that. But God, on the other hand, is equally, if not more, pursuing your life to, to, to give you life, to give you joy, to give you, to give you purpose in this life. But unfortunately as we talked about before sometimes our lives are so focused on the on the on the earthly on the temporary on the things that we can see and God is inviting us this morning into something different stop living in the natural and begin living in the supernatural where only God is and only God can move only God can do what he can do so when we talk about morning we talk about about mourning what we have, what we have lost, because we've all experienced that loss. We, it's, it's recovering the things that have been taken from us, recovering the things that the enemy has stolen from us. Every story of Jesus in the Bible, when he encounters someone, is a story of recovery. He's giving them back what has been stolen from them. Think about the woman at the well. He begins to speak to her, and he begins to read her mail. He, she says, well, I, I'm, I'm with a man, but we're not married. And he says, you're right. You've married many men. And essentially what he's saying is you've been, you've been going and, and trying to draw water from many different places, and it's left you unsatisfied. And so essentially he's singing the tune, looking for love in all the wrong places. Look, and he didn't do that, but that would have been cool if he did. Um But that's what was happening with this lady. And so he then deposits something in her life that changes everything. He says, listen, I'm going to give you water that when you drink of it, you will never thirst again. This is water that's going to change everything in your life. I'm giving you back what the enemy has stolen from you. And we see that story after story after story. I mean, basically every story of Jesus encountering someone is a story of recovery. Recovery is not just drugs and alcohol. Recovery is whatever's been taken from us, whatever it is in our lives that the enemy has tried to mess up in your life. And listen, a lot of times we allow it, and sometimes we don't even know that we're allowing it to happen. But I can guarantee you that it's happened. This life is full of difficulty and loss a loss of someone or something we loved, the loss of joy, the loss of peace, loss of freedom, loss of purity and innocence, loss of purpose and direction. So when we lose, what do we do about it? Today we're gonna talk about the different paths to comfort and hope. We're gonna talk about our paths to comfort and hope. We're gonna talk, uh, talk about God's path to comfort and hope. So let's look at this slide here. Here's a, a cool guy in an awesome hat, and um, we see two different paths, and they look very different, don't they? On this side, we have our paths, and, and I know this may seem kind of cliche, but they represent something that I think is very important and very prevalent in our lives and in this world. Um, and they're not, in any necessar- they're not necessarily in any order of, of importance, um, but we have things like sex. There's Sex addiction it just runs rampant. And the idea of sex and, 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 and sexuality is something that is very, is very difficult in our world today. We have entertainment. Um, alcohol can definitely be a path to comfort and hope. Shopping. Uh, some of these you might look at and you're like, what? Is that really a path to comfort and hope? And I can guarantee you after 20 years of ministry that countless times, every single one of these I've seen in people's lives and in my own life, as places we go to find comfort and hope. Because it's easy. It's easy just to go and to, next thing you know, you've watched an entire season of something on Netflix and you haven't had to deal with the stuff with work, the stuff in your marriage, the stuff that you're dealing with in this life. It's just easy to go and check out. Um, Food can definitely be one. Drugs. Drugs in different ways. Um, Work, staying busy. That's a big one. Pastor Ryan talked about that a little bit last week. Gambling can be a path. To comfort and hope. Anger. Anger is all about control, isn't it? It's like we get angry. We want control. I can't believe that this is happening. I'm going to take matters into my own hand. Pride and self-reliance. A lot of times we think that if we can just try harder, then then everything's going to be better. We're going to feel better. We're going to feel comfort. We're going to feel hope. Um, Self-pity. Sleep. These are just different paths that we take in order to find comfort and hope. And when we do that, what happens is we still feel like we did before. Except for we've had a moment of something, right? A moment of entertainment or a moment of pleasure or a moment of whatever, whatever the case may be. But here's the word that I want you to write down this morning. It's an important word. It's the word escape. We try to escape our pain, our hurts, our loss to a place of comfort and hope, and we try to get there as quickly as possible. And the reason we do these things is because what happens is, is in life, and, and by the way, these things aren't all necessarily bad. Some of these, it's you get addicted to them, and then it's bad because you depend on them. But let me tell you something. What happens in this world is you, you get a taste of something or you experience something, and it locks it in your mind That that's something that gives you relief or or, or helps you cope in this world or provides safety. Um, I've studied the mind recently and how it relates to the Bible. And there's a thing in our mind, in our brain, called the limbic system. And the limbic system is this part of our brain that is the survival part of your brain. That you'll do everything you can to be comforted, to, to, to seek safety. And so once we've experienced something, when something difficult comes up in our life or when there's, when there's a loss or when something happens in our lives, our brain, the limbic system says, oh, hey, don't forget about this one thing that you experienced. Maybe that will provide comfort and hope. And then you keep going back for it. Each time you go back for it, what happens? You need more, right? Before you know it, we've got a stronghold in our lives. We've got strongholds in our lives. We've got addictions in our lives. And these things are very, very difficult then to get rid of. And by the way, I'm talking from experience here. And I'll share with you this morning a little bit of of my my story, a little bit of my experience with this. But as we've mentioned, the problem with this is escaping only gives us a temporary escape, gives no comfort in the end, and leaves us addicted because we continue to go back. We want more and more, but this was never going to give us comfort even to begin with. So God's path to comfort and hope is very different. His path to comfort and hope in our lives is that we mourn. Because when we mourn, that's when he can comfort us. It's like a child. It's like a child. When they cry, we hear their cry and we go to them. A good parent, someone that loves their children, when they hear their children cry, when they hear their children call for them, what do they do? They go and they comfort them. Now, a child that doesn't think they need their parents, that's different, right? It's hard to comfort a child when they don't think that they need it. Uh, I, we have uh, three children, and, uh, you know, I'm glad I had kids because now I have sermon illustrations um, to be able to feed off of. Um, but we, we have a 10-year-old who, who mourns very well. Like, she's really good at mourning, like a little too much. Takes after her mom. Anyways, um, so, which is a good thing, which is a good thing um but she what i mean by this is since she was a little baby like if if anything bad happened she's instantly like oh mommy daddy and she just wants comforting that's like the way it's her love language is she wants us to come and wrap our arms around her and so when we when we had our first child Man, we thought we were the greatest parents in the world. I got two years old. We're getting ready to write parenting books. Like, this is how you uh, parent, and this is our child. She's perfect, right? And by the way, she wasn't perfect. But then came along child number two. And she's very, very different. And by the way, let me just preface this by saying... These personalities, one's not better than the other, one's not right, one's not wrong, but it's an illustration of how different this is, and it leads us to something important. Our second child, very strong-willed, very stubborn, so when something bad happens to her, she doesn't mourn and call for us, she throws something at our heads. Because she wants to take control and she's going to take care of the situation right now. perfect example is when London was about five and Lila was about three. We were at a play area outside in Denver and this little boy walked up to them and started, started teasing them and making fun of them and saying bad things to them. And so London immediately just breaks down crying and runs over to us. And so we're comforting her. We're like, it's okay, it's all right. That mean boy, he shouldn't have done that, you know. And what we don't notice is our second child is walking towards the boy. And it's like slow motion in the movies. I'm like, no, because she's got her arm behind her back. And I don't know what's in her hand. She walks up to this little boy right in front of the little boy's parents and boom, dirt right in the face. Now, I'll be honest with you. At first, I was like, yeah, that was awesome. And then I'm like, oh, no, you can't. That's bad. You can't do that. But there's there's a, a huge difference between the way they process and deal with life. There's something inside of each one of us, especially as we get older, that we want to be that second child. I'm going to take care of this. Oh, this is difficult in my life, but I'm just going to be strong. I'm going to be tough. I can do this. I can do this on my own. And that gets us in trouble, especially spiritually, because God desires to be in that process with us. And he desires to put people in your life to be in that process as well. So when we decide or when we get to a place in our lives that we're going to do this on our own, that we're going we're to go through this process on our own, that's the first step towards destruction. That's the first step towards addiction. It's the first step towards, towards devastating things happening in your life. Now listen, we can be emotional hoarders. And, and I know this is a difficult Topic for many of us. This is a hugely difficult topic for me, but I've grown over the years to understand this and to appreciate the importance of this emotionally. Because I'm not a very emotional person. My wife is very emotional. I'm not a very emotional person, so I can tend to withdraw. I can tend to isolate, and I just want to like. I just want it to. I just want to do this on my own. I want to make sure that 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 um, that I'm in control. I want to make sure that 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 whatever it is that I'm going through, that I'm going to be the one to solve the problem for that. What I've learned over the years is that gets me in trouble. What I've learned is I need to be open about what's going on in my life. Because if we're just hoarding all the time, we stuff it in. And I'm telling you, there's not a human being on this planet that is capable of doing that when before long this person isn't going to blow up and something's going to happen in their lives. We don't even know that it's happening It's called pride, and we don't even know sometimes that it's pride. I certainly look back, and I see there was a lot of pride in my life, because I'm just taking care of it myself. I'm just doing it myself. I'm just going to be strong. I'm going to be tough. But you know what happens? This is my personality. I'll let things go. I'll, I'll just stuff it in. I'll stuff it in. And then about a week or two later, sometimes more regularly, it blows up. And unfortunately, my family are the recipients of it. And so the importance of Mourning and allowing God to come in and bring comfort and hope in our lives is huge. And it's one of the first steps to freedom. It's one of the first steps towards what God wants to do in our lives and where God wants to take us. So listen, mourning is deep sorrow for what has been taken from you. And it's God's path to comfort and hope. It's God's path to what he wants to do in your life. I love the message translation of this verse. Matthew 5, 4. It says, You're blessed. When you feel you've lost what is most dear to you, because only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. Many of you know I grew up in South America, in Chile. And uh, when I was in college, I went back to Chile for a summer to live there and do an internship there. And so uh, my my transportation there was taking the bus around Santiago. But Santiago is huge. It's like 5.5 million people. And it's this huge city and it's spread out. Um, And and so I was making my way around the bus system and feeling pretty confident about the bus system, and I know what I'm doing. Well, one night I got invited to someone's house for dinner, and it's some people that we knew when we used to live live there back in the day. So they invited me to dinner, and we had a great time, and at the end of the night, um, they said, hey, let's send our daughter with you to uh, get you back to where you need to go because it's late, it's dark, it's kind of dangerous out there, so she'll know how to get you back home. Well, I decided not to take them up on that. Number one, I think the girl was kind of interested in me, you know, and I didn't want to, you know, her to think this was a date on the bus. So that was one thing. But the true thing with this is that I felt like I had this. I felt like I was good. So I get on the bus. I go out. I get on the bus. And I think I'm on the right bus. And then I switch to this second bus. And I'm just confident. Yeah, I'm good. I know, I know where I'm going. And so this bus keeps going all these different places, and I don't recognize any of these places. And people keep getting off. Turns out, by the end of this night, there's only two people left on this bus. One was me. The other was the driver. And so at about 12.30, 1 o'clock at night, this driver pulls into this field where there's all these other buses, pulls in next to these buses, parks the bus, turns it off, and gets off. Leaving me on the bus alone, in this part of Santiago that was that didn't look very safe. It, it looked like it didn't look like uh, an, an American should be there alone. Um, and so I get out of the bus and I'm freaking out. It's like, how does this guy do this? Like his shift was over. He's just like, I'm done. I'm clocking out. Like this guy's not gonna make me work overtime. So. Um, So I I go outside, and I'm just walking around, and honestly, this is the most lost and the most desperate I think I've ever felt, the most hopeless I've ever felt, because I have no clue where I am. There's no cell phones back then. I have no idea what I'm doing. Well, all of a sudden, kind of out of nowhere, I mean, he came from somewhere, but this older man walks up to me, and he he could tell that I was lost, and he could tell that I needed help. And so he just was so nice and kind and compassionate, and he, he, uh, he led me back to where I needed to go to, to catch the bus that I needed to catch to take me where I needed to go. He knew exactly where I, where I needed to go. And so he even walked with me, and as we walked, we talked, and it was, it was really comforting. It was a really incredible experience. And as I turned to say thank you to, to him, he had vanished. No, I'm just kidding. That, <laughs> But how cool would that have been, right? I mean, come on. I've always wanted to tell a story like that. It was an angel. It wasn't an angel. He was still there and still very friendly, very nice. But the moral of the story is that I was hopeless, and I needed help, and I was willing to take it. But sometimes what happens is we're not willing to take help until we're desperate. And with that comes pain and heartache and difficulty in our lives. Sometimes we don't accept help until we're hopeless and lost. How many of you know what I'm talking about here? I can certainly, I can certainly say that has been maybe the theme of my life at times, where I just think, I don't need anybody, I don't need anything, and then all of a sudden you're in this place where you just like, sometimes it's rock bottom, sometimes it's a place of hopelessness. I've, been, I've experienced depression in my life. I've experienced a lot of things in my life, and it's only in that moment where I'm like, oh, man, I really do need help. I, need, I do need God in my life. I do need what he has to offer me. So we've talked about our path to comfort and hope. Now let's talk about God's path. And I want to tell you, today's message, and this is really good. I just feel like God put this on my heart, but I think this is really good. Today's message is about getting lost because of pride, being found because of grace, and getting home because of trust. That's what this story is all about. So God's path to comfort and hope is like going to a kind and compassionate dentist. <laughs> I'm telling you, when we talk about the Christian life, we make it seem really good, don't we? We're like, oh, yeah, except Jesus, everything's great now, it's awesome. Listen, what we really should do when someone gets saved, we should bring them up to the front. We should punch them in the face and say, welcome to the kingdom of pain. Because that's what Christianity is. It's a painful experience. Now listen, it's the most rewarding and most wonderful and most fulfilling experience you could ever experience in your life. But like everything else, the best things in life take sacrifice, don't they? It's painful. And listen, why is it like a kind, compassionate dentist? Because when you go to a dentist, there's pain. And it's going to get even more painful, isn't it? There, it, dentists, when I was a kid, I had a terrible experience with a dentist in Chile. I don't even know if he's a real dentist. Mom and dad, I'm still, i am still, I don't know. I, I don't know. My parents are here. Still hold emotional. The, the guy, I chipped a tooth, and the guy lit a match, and while the match was really hot, he put it on my tooth. And it was awful. And from that day, I hated dentists. I didn't want to have anything to do with dentists. Over the years I've experienced, and by the way, we were missionaries, we didn't have a lot of money, we took whatever we could get, right? So at least we got some dental care from somebody. <laughs> and I love my parents, by the way, and, and they did great. They did great. They were awesome. Great. Now I feel like I have to like dig myself out of this hole, but it's but when we go to a dentist, we go because there's something that's telling us to go, right? We experience something, there's pain. Last week, Pastor Ryan said that pain is is God's megaphone to this world. It's the way he communicates. So it's through that pain that we know something's off and something's wrong. So when we go to a dentist, we go because something needs to happen, but it's going to be a painful experience. And that's why many of us don't want to go into it. It's why many of us don't want to walk into freedom and walk into, because we know that the only way we can get there is to do all of these things and walk in all of these things that God is leading us into that are going to be difficult and painful. Listen, let's just be honest. Hurt from the past, it's difficult and hard to revisit. Addictions, they didn't happen overnight. Issues in our lives, they didn't happen overnight. It's going to take time for God to do what he fully wants to do, that he who begun a good work in us will continue it into the day of completion. It's not an easy process, but the result, when you go to a dentist, and I know this, a few years ago, I got a root canal, and it was awful. It was terrible, but I'm telling you, I felt like a brand new person after I went to the dentist. I was a new man after the dentist. It ruined our vacation leading up to it because the pain was so bad, and it was awful. But listen, when we lean in and we trust God and what he has for our lives, we know that the end result is going to be good, even though there's pain and even though it's not the easiest process in the world. It's so worth it. So let me just show you three things real quick. It got real cold in here, didn't it? Anybody else? Maybe the guys back there can, uh, can warm it up just a little bit. Um, I'm hoping it's just the temperature and it's not anything else, uh, if you know what I mean. So three things. Three things that that God wants us to understand as we go into this. Number one is we need to see who God really is. This is important. I told you earlier that our beliefs dictate our behavior. And so I want to talk about this. We need to see God for who he really is. We will either see God as a comforter or a condemner. And it's really easy to see God as a condemner. Because we easily take on guilt and shame and condemnation. We feel unworthy. And so we begin to see God as a God that's just an angry God that sits up in heaven and just waits for you to mess up so that he can punish you. That's not the God that the Bible displays. In fact, let me just read some of these passages for you. Romans eight thirty four. Who will then condemn us? Will Christ? No. For he is the one who died for us and came back to life again for us and is sitting at the place of honor highest honor next to God, pleading for us there in heaven. Psalm 86, but you, O Lord, are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. 2 Corinthians 1.3, God is the Father who is full of mercy and all comfort. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Do you know that that Jesus said, "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father." So how do you know what Jesus? Or how do you know what God is like? Look at Jesus. That's that that's his entire message when he was here. Is I am the the in, I am God incarnate. I am the I am the the full revelation of who God is. And so look at Jesus to see who He is, and look at Jesus' teachings to really understand who God is. This is huge, because if you see God as a condemning God, you won't run to Him, you'll run away from Him. Much like I did. God is a loving father. We see it in the story of the prodigal son. You guys know the story of the lost son, this son. He says, "God, I want my inheritance now." And so the father gives him his half of the inheritance. And the Bible says he goes out and he spends his money on wild living. He's living la vida loca and he's going crazy out there. But he spends all of his money. And before you know it, hard times fall on him. Hard times fall on the, on the nation. And so he ends up eating pig food. And as he's sitting there eating pig food and having nothing, he remembers, at my father's house, even the servants eat better than I'm eating right now. Servants are taken care of. So I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna just beg to be a servant. And the beautiful part of this story is as he's walking back to his father's house, his father isn't inside concerned about other things. It says the father's waiting and watching for him. That his father hasn't stopped waiting and watching for him. And the Bible says, while the son was still a long ways off, the father ran to him. And he, and, he, and he covered him with a robe and he put a ring on his finger and he says, we're going to kill a fatted calf. We're going to celebrate because my son was lost and now he's been found. He has returned. That is what the father looks like. That is who God really is. You can't argue with Jesus because that's the picture that Jesus displays for us. That God is a God of all comfort. This matters, again, Because our beliefs result in our behaviors. If we don't believe this about God, we'll run to other things for comfort and hope. So that's what we do, essentially, is we don't even think about it, but we immediately go to other things. Because deep down inside, there's a belief inside of us that God doesn't really care, that we don't matter to him, and that somehow we're not in good standing with him. Can I just make something clear? Your standing with God has nothing to do with what you've done or haven't done. It has everything to do with what he has done for you. So all you have to do is just say, okay, God, here I am. He's a loving father. He's the God of all comfort. You know, growing up, uh, I, I had amazing parents, and they taught me so many wonderful, great things about God. But I also had a teacher, some preachers, and chick tracks. anybody remember chick tracks? Anyone? A couple of people. Man, these chick, these chick tracks were brutal. I remember we used to hand them out, and they were they were. Uh, th- does anybody remember? Raise your hand if you remember chick tracks. I'm not saying they were all bad, but the ones I got were bad, man. They scared the hell out of me. They literally did, like hell, because it was all about hell. It was all about condemnation, and and I remember opening these up, and people getting hurled into hell, and it was frightening, and I had a teacher when I was in in about third grade, and she was just mean, and she was at a Christian school, and I remember she, she she would point her finger at us, and she just was mean. I remember one day I got in trouble. I did something dumb. I know it was dumb, but I was only, you know, seven, six, seven years old, all six- and seven-year-olds, they don't even know how to not do dumb stuff, right? I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's some. That I didn't know how, and so I did it. And I remember the teacher just getting in my face, and she was so angry, and she was so mean. And she said, God is angry with you. He doesn't like you when you do that. And, he, and she said this. She said, he, he wants nothing to do with you when you act like this. And I, I, I was, that was devastating to me. I didn't tell anybody that she had done that. But I believed her. I believed her because she was someone that represented God to me. And then there was preachers growing up that I saw, and they were all about hell, fire, and brimstone. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about hell. I'm not saying we shouldn't. We need to. It's important that we know the whole counsel of God. We know everything about the Bible. But when people try to scare you into heaven, there's something a little off there. It's called spiritual terrorism. Honestly. Honestly. Because the Bible describes it as the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the good news is that he came to save us. Jesus says, I don't come to condemn the world, but to save the world to myself. Maybe you can think of somebody in your life or people in your life that painted a bad picture of God. Sometimes it's leadership in our lives. Sometimes it's parents in our lives. Sometimes it's the lack of leadership or parents in our lives. Um, But what happens is, is we're left with with a false view of God. You guys know what I'm talking about? Um, I certainly fell into that. And I know it's, it's, it's a very common, very prevalent thing in our culture. But the reality is, is that God is the God of all comfort. He's a father who's crazy about each one of us that sits at the window waiting and watching. When is my son gonna return? When is my daughter gonna return? He's the God that leaves the 99 for that one He's willing to do that. That's how much he loves you and pursues you and pursues each one of us. So number two, first one is we see who God really is. And number two is we must see who we really are. I must see who I really am. Now this is a really important step because first off, we have to be willing to admit and recognize our brokenness um, and, and be willing to be honest about it. Because there's no one that isn't broken. There isn't anyone who hasn't sinned. There isn't anyone who hasn't had difficulty, who hasn't messed up in their lives, who hasn't, who hasn't done things that they wish they hadn't, hadn't made decisions that they wish they hadn't. And why this is so important is that until we're willing to admit that, then we are closed off to what God wants to do in our lives or how God wants to use people in our lives. It's a prideful thing. We think everything's okay. A lot of times what we can do is we can say, I'm just going to try harder and it's going to get better. Well, if willpower was the way to do this, then it would have happened by now. But it hasn't. And so we need God and we need what he has for us. So it's important that we recognize our brokenness and that we're willing to be honest about it. And secondly, I have to know who I am. I have to know I am a son of God. We have to know that we are sons and daughters of the living God that he is our father, that he cares about us, that he pursues us and that he loves us more than we could ever even possibly imagine. It's important to know that we're broken, but that God comes into the middle of the brokenness and the mess of our lives and makes something beautiful. You know, when Jesus came to this earth, it was in a really difficult and dark time in human history, but he came to this earth, he was willing to get into the mess of our lives, You don't believe me? Did he spend any time with the people that had it all together? No. He spent time with the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the people that were despised in their culture. That shows me something. It shows me God is willing to get into the mess of my, of my life. He's willing to do whatever it takes to bring healing and freedom and hope and purpose to my life. We look at the prodigal son. He had a, a moment of recognition, didn't he? It's like, wow, I am really messed up. This is not going well for me. And so he, he decides, I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go back home, and I'm going to beg my father just to let me be a servant again. He didn't even realize that he was still a son of God. So he noticed his brokenness. He recognized that, but he didn't recognize that he's still a son And so he goes back home, and as we know the story, the father embraces him, and he says, you're not a servant. You're my son. You've never stopped being my son. You just lost your identity for a little bit. I believe God wants us to be reminded this morning of our true identity, and that is we are sons and we are daughters of the living God, that we are loved, that we are pursued, and that he stops at nothing to be with us. There's many scriptures there that you can read on your, on your page, all of them pointing to the fact that God loves us and that we matter to him. I just want to stop before I give the last point this morning. I just want to focus real quickly on the fact that you matter to God. It's hard to even know how to communicate this because it, it feels cliche to say things like, He wouldn't have made you if you don't matter to him. But it's the truth. He created you. The Bible says he knew you before you were even born. He knows how many many hairs are on your head. He knows everything about you. You matter to him. Do you know that the Bible also says in... uh, Psalm 139, it says, How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They, can't, they cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. That is how much God thinks about you. That is how much you matter to him. You matter to God. If you don't believe you matter to God, then your life is going significantly, to significantly display that. God wants you to know how important you are to him, how much value you have to him. You are so valuable. And he hates it when he sees his children hurting. He hates it when he sees his children suffering, when he sees his children addicted, when he sees his children in difficult places and wants nothing, nothing more than to come and reach out his hand to help us. And that is what this series is all about a loving father that reaches out his hand and he says, will you trust me? Will you trust me? And that leads us to the last point here. First one is see who God really is. Second is see who I really am. And number three is see how God can change me and see how God wants to change me. Listen, this is really important that we know this. God loves you exactly the way you are but loves you way too much to let you stay that way. It's the truth. He loves you so much, but he loves you so much that he doesn't want you just to stay where you're at. He wants to take you to higher levels, to new places, to places of freedom, to places of life, to places of abundance, to places of prosperity. And I'm not just talking money. I'm talking prosperity and life because that's what he has for you. That's the, he's, you're his child. He has great things for you, but the only way it can happen is by us surrendering our own control and our own will and saying, God, okay, I'll let you do it. I'll let you do it. I'll let it be your way. Even if it's painful, the digging up process, even if it's painful, I'm going to let you because I trust you, God. It can only come from God. None of us have either the motivation or the power to change ourselves we don't. Now there's little things we can change. My wife really likes it when I take out the trash on time, you know, things like that. And and uh, I could do better at being more timely on it. Now, I think no one should put anything in the trash when it's full. I mean, that's just a thought, you know, that like my kids and my wife, like if it's full and flowing over, like it's full, you know, start a new bag, you know, those kinds of things. Little things that we can all change in life, right? But I'm talking about the deep spiritual things that God wants to change in our lives, that he who has begun a good work in us wants to continue that. The Bible describes us as masterpieces. Did you know that? You know what that means? It means you're a piece of work. <laughs> that we're all a piece of work. And that his masterpiece doesn't mean, oh, I found someone that's perfect. They're my masterpiece. No, because that doesn't even exist. You know what a masterpiece is? It's a picture with contrast. It's like, whoa, this is how things were. This is what things are now. Well, this is how difficult things are. This is where God has brought me. That's the contrast that we see, and that's what makes a painting beautiful is we see the shades and we see the differences in the picture. We see where we once were and where God is taking us and where we now are and where God, what God is doing inside of us. That's the beauty of what a masterpiece is. It's what God is doing in our lives. And we see this with the prodigal son. What changed him? What established him back to his right place? It was the love, mercy, compassion, and kindness of his father. That's what did it. It wasn't the condemnation. It wasn't the pointing of the finger. You know, I've still, to date, never seen someone come to know Jesus by being yelled at and talked down to, but I see people come to Jesus all of the time through compassion, through love, through mercy, and through the heart of God towards people. So I want to end by just giving you just a little glimpse into my story. As I told you, I grew up in in South America. I grew up in Chile, and. Uh, it was kind of difficult coming back to the United States because I was this little blonde haired boy with a Spanish accent, and uh, I didn't feel like I fit in here i didn't know really where my home was. I was born in the United States, but I had grown up in in South America and Chile, and so it was difficult and and i didn't know really how to process life very well it was I, i'd had I had beliefs from like i said the the teacher and preachers and different things that I'd experienced and so I came back, and I just wanted to be an American kid, and, and uh, I, I remember uh, just the difficulty in that, and, and struggling with identity, and just not knowing who I was, struggling with who I thought God was, um, and, and a significant thing happened to me when I was about 15 years old. Um, I was at my uncle's house, and he had an area in his house that had, uh, some, had pool table, ping pong table, but I also had a big screen television. And this was back with VHS tapes. He had this huge library of VHS tapes. So we would watch like The Karate Kid and watch different movies. Well, one night, somehow, I found myself alone down there. And I don't know where everybody else was at. But um, I discovered a collection of tapes that piqued my interest. And so I I put one in. And uh, it happened to be pornography. And I remember just feeling so wrong about watching this but there was something about it that just drew me in and it was really an interesting experience and um, after that night I remember just feeling this overwhelming sense of guilt, condemnation, shame. Um, All of a sudden now I'm hearing the teacher telling me in in my head, I hear the teacher telling me that God hates me. God wants nothing to do with me. I hear the preachers telling me I'm going to hell. I see the chick, chick tracks and it's me in there, you know, being condemned and thrown into hell, essentially. And I went to bed many nights after that, feeling like I was going to hell. And I wanted to tell my parents what I'd seen. I wanted, I'd never seen anything like that before. And I wanted to tell them. But it's just like the enemy does. He lies to us. He's the father of lies. He tells us. He said, he says, no, you can't tell them. They'll, I mean, I didn't think this, but it's stupid lies. Like they'll they'll think you're terrible. They'll put you up for adoption. I didn't think that was gonna happen, but I mean, you think terrible things. And it was just, and so so what I did was I kept it to myself. And I remember thinking, I'm just never gonna do that again. It's gonna be like God, I promise you, that's it. I'll never do it again. But the reality is, is we're only as sick as our secrets. And so it accumulated. Before I know it, I'm in high school and I'm sexually active and doing things in my life that completely just walking away from God. I walked away from a God that I thought hated me especially now that i'm into this world and these these things that i'm covering up and that i'm hiding i can't tell my parents i can't tell anybody i go to church every sunday i can't tell anybody because when you go to church everybody's dressed so nice and you think you're the only one in the entire building that has anything wrong going on in your life that's how i felt at that time so i just kept it hidden i kept it hidden when i was 18 i had an incredible experience with god So, I decided to go to Bible college. But my belief system was still so off that I kept it hidden. I remember thinking, if I go to Bible college, surely that will cure this. I won't have any issues with this anymore. I won't feel depressed. I won't feel lonely. I won't want to look at pornography. Everything's going to be fine. I went all through Bible college addicted. And back then we didn't really have the internet it wasn't but it was it was an addiction it was something that I I mean I could go maybe a month or two without acting out but it was I would always go back to it because it was hidden I graduate from Bible college I I take a position as a as a on on a on a staff at a church in Kansas and I remember thinking if I once I get there then everything's going to be fine I won't this, this won't be a problem in my life anymore because I'll be a pastor and God, I'm, I'm, I'll be a pastor, I'll be in ministry. And so I promise you, I'm not going to do it anymore while I go. And before long, I'm back in the same place. And it got bad like the second year that I was there. I lived in this little house alone and I was so depressed, so depressed, addicted, hated myself, felt like God hated me. And I'm in ministry. I'm getting up in front of people so fake saying, oh, God loves you. He thinks you're great. And then I'd go home and think God hates me and thinks I'm terrible. And it was in that season through different people, through different messages, through my pastor in that church, a godly man of mercy and compassion that I begin to see God differently. And I remember so clearly God in that season of my life invited me into something I'd never walked in before. He said, if you trust me, I'll lead you into freedom. I'll lead you into life. I'll lead you into hope. But you got to trust me. I said, God, whatever it is, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. I was getting ready to go on a mission trip to Venezuela. And it was just going to be me and my really good friend named Kyle and, uh, God spoke to me clearly, and he says, on this trip, I'm going to provide for you an opportunity. And listen to the words he used. He didn't say, I'm going to make you do this. He said, I'm going to provide for you an open door to freedom on this trip. And I said, okay, God, whatever it is, whatever you want me to do. And I remember on this trip, I was sitting. Kyle and I were eating dinner one night after we'd done this camp. I remember God spoke to me, spoke to my heart, and he said, I want you to tell Kyle everything. Start from the beginning. And I don't know why this is so difficult. The reason it was difficult for me was because I would bought into the lie for so many years that if I say this to anybody, I'm outed. And I don't even deserve. I felt so unworthy. I was talking to someone between services. They came up and they said, I've I've experienced everything you've experienced and the unworthiness that we feel. I just feel so unworthy. I feel so unlovable. I feel so, so many things. It was so difficult. But I said, I'm tired of living this way. And so I remember just telling Kyle everything. And I trusted Kyle. He was a good friend of mine. And I believe that when we do this, it's got to be someone that you trust, but I told him everything, and I, I just laid it all out there, and we cried together because he was willing and able then to confess things in his life. Did you know that the Bible says when we confess to God, He forgives us, but then when we confess one to another and pray for each other, that that's when He heals us? Is that interesting? that God brings healing through relationships and through people. Because when we keep secrets to ourselves, when we keep it in, what we're doing is we're allowing whatever that is or whatever those things are to gain so much power in our lives. And the longer they're there, the more power they have. Now listen, God brought more people into my life after that. I thank God for what he did in my life, but I had to trust him. It was painful. It was a painful process. But as he brought more people into my life, he brought more healing and more freedom into my life. He began to show me who he really was as a father. And it was a beautiful thing. Now, I've fallen since then. But let me tell you, the times that I've fallen since then, because I was back when I was probably about 25 years old, 24 years old. The times that I've fallen is only when I get on that bus alone and I think, I've got this. I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to find my way. I don't need anybody else. That's when I fall. I don't fall when I have people in my life and when I trust God and his process in my life. That's when there are seasons of freedom and life. Now, let me just say one last thing on this. There's always a great fear, especially in front of a lot of people, to talk about things like this because we want our pastors to be squeaky clean. We want our pastors to not have struggled with anything. But let me tell you something. And I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but I've been in ministry now for about 21 years. Pastors struggle. We're humans. We struggle. We're just like we're just like you in the sense that we get attacked. And let me tell you something, we get attacked sometimes maybe more because we're that big target. That the enemy likes to shoot things, shoot those fiery darts at, those arrows. But I also want to say something. In this room, let's be honest, there's struggles. Men, I know the statistics. And in this room, there's many of us that are struggling with pornography. It's a big thing for women as well. I was just speaking with with Jared between services. Jared Giese, he he's... Um, one of the main leaders for christiancinema.com, and there's a film out called The Heart of Man. Is that, is that right? The Heart of Man. And uh, he so graciously said, I'm going to give a code for anyone that wants to go and watch that, and they can watch it for, for free on Christian Cinema, and we'll, we'll send out that, that code this week, make it available. Um, actually, I could just make up a code right now, and it'll be on there, right? Is that right? Okay, so what's the code going to be? It's going to be Lifehouse. Let's just make it Lifehouse. Easy enough. Is that good, Jared? It's a very important film. It's not just for men, but it also talks talks about the heart and the condition of our heart. Go to ChristianCinema.com this week and watch that film because I believe God wants to begin something new in our lives. The percentages are staggering on how the enemy attacks, but it's even more staggering on how we keep it so hidden and so secret from each other and from God even. God wants to do something new in each one of our lives. It may require this week a difficult conversation with a spouse. Listen, I would love it if I got 100 phone calls this week, only because I would love just to be able to start that process, if, if it, men, if something's going on, I've gotten phone calls recently, and, and I have my whole ministry, especially since I've been honest about my struggle in this area. I'd love to for you to reach out to me, and let's talk. Let's start this process of what God wants to do in your life, um, because I know that the reality is, is that there's, there's stuff, and I, I just know that there is. Um. Because God wants us to trust him. And he won't lead you and make you do anything or have you do anything that isn't for your good, that isn't for your well-being. But he will lead you into things that seem very difficult and seem like there's no way you could ever do it. There's no way. But I promise you, when he calls you to it, he sees you through it. 100%. Let's have the worship team come back up. Philippians 1.6 says, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue it till, the, till it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. He is at work within you and it is he that wants to unlock the prison doors in your life. Now listen, we're only on week two of an eight week series so I'm not trying to just cover it all today but this was the session for today and this is what God put on my heart for today. But I will say this, Open yourself up to the process over these next weeks. If you missed last week, go back and listen to last week. Be committed to this process during these next, these next six weeks after today. And I promise you, as he's done in my life, as he's done in my wife's life, as he's done in the life of so many people, he wants to do that in your life as well. He's a good father. You can trust him. And when we mourn, you know that he brings comfort, hope, and peace to your life. So Father, today instead of trying to hope, I choose to trust you in hope. I trust that you're a loving Father. Whatever I might feel about you, the truth is you love me enough to die for me, Jesus, that while I was still a sinner, you died for me. That when you entered into relationship with me, you did it knowing every sin I would ever commit after that, yet you still chose a relationship with me. Father, I trust that you love me. I trust that whatever's happened in my life is safe with you. I trust you to give me strength for my soul. And Father, I trust that you will do this because you have shown me your love in Jesus Christ. So in Jesus' name, I trust you, and in Jesus' name, I hope. Amen. Amen.